Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces, and I am joined, as always these days, over Zoom by Stephanie Carvin. And today, Stephanie, we have a special deep dive on an event, namely a court case, that was issued at the end of July, made some press, and there was a fair amount of attention. I suspect it's not over. I suspect it will wind its way up the appeal chain. We can talk about that. But Stephanie, what are we talking about today? We are talking about the safe third-party agreement, something that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years, particularly as the United States has uh, changed some of its immigration policies in fairly dramatic ways. And we have seen um, an uptick in what what I'm going to call irregular crossings across the border uh, into Canada. And we will talk a bit more about that. But all of this came to a head last month with the application of the Canadian Council of Refugees and some of their friends to the federal court, uh, basically declaring the safe third party agreement to be contrary to uh, Canadian law. And here we are. We had a decision. It'll, as you said, probably make its way up the appeal process something I'm not an expert on, but I can't wait to hear more about. But we thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about refugee law as it applies to Canada generally. This is going to be a pretty good podcast. Yeah, we've not actually talked much about refugee law on a podcast called Intrepid in the past. And in fact, the timing is perfect because we've just completed as part of our chapter four of our Muskoka chair chats, a deep dive on section seven of the charter, life, liberty, security, the person. And in fact, this case raises that very provision of the charter, Section 7, Life, Liberty, Security of the Person. And to guide us through this conversation, we're very pleased to welcome to this episode Jamie Liu from the University of Ottawa Common Law section, my colleague, who teaches refugee law, amongst other things, and is a close watcher of the Safe Third Country Agreement and its pros and cons. And so welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you for having me. So maybe we should start with with laying the foundation here. So let's assume that our listeners know next to nothing about refugee law, both domestic and international. Perhaps this would be a good opportunity for us to just set that stage and talk a little bit about what is refugee law, why do we have it, and what are the core precepts of it? Yeah, refugee law really is meant to address the forced displacement and migratory movements as a result of political strife, war, humanitarian crises. And mainly, it had arised through international law, through the convention called um, the Refugee Convention. And the Refugee Convention came about post-war to address migratory movements where people were fleeing persecution, death, all kinds of terrible, traumatic um, situations. And countries were being called upon to provide what is known colloquially as substitute protection by states. Um, And mainly it's there to um, provide safe haven, to provide sanctuary, to provide asylum for people who cannot or are unable to get protection from their state that they are from. So the Refugee Convention is the basis of this kind of protection. And basically it provides the framework or the legal definition for who is a refugee. And so for anybody who's not aware, in order to claim refugee protection, you need to have a well-founded fear of persecution based on one of the five enumerated grounds. And those five enumerated grounds are race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, and political opinion. Some of these are very easy to understand. If someone is expressing a political opinion, they're being persecuted, you can fit into Um, The definition, membership of a particular social group has evolved where some countries recognize 
or will give protection where, for example, someone is being persecuted on the basis of their gender, on the basis of their sexual orientation. Aside from having this well-founded fear of persecution, you also have to claim that the persecution is coming or happening in a state that is unwilling or unable to protect you. And so that's the second kind of layer or step for people to understand that you can't just say that you have this fear or that you are exposed to this risk of persecution or torture or death, but also that you um, can't get the protection of the country that you are coming from. So, Jamie, it's from what I understand about the history of the 1951 Refugee Convention, you mentioned it was a product of the Second World War. And of course, the Second World War saw massive population movements, both during the war and in the wake of the war, uh, and disastrous outcomes, as we all know, for the populations and, of course, the Holocaust and, and other travesties. But of course, prior to the Second World War, there were efforts by persecuted populations to flee repressive states. Uh, and th- those uh, people fleeing that persecution, and I think here of Jews who were fleeing Nazi Germany, were sometimes turned around, in fact, often turned around in relation to the countries to which they fled, and, and in fact, ended up dying during the Holocaust. And that shame, that horror, uh, I, my understanding of the 1951 convention is it, it was a, an expression of never again, that we don't want to put states in the position of turning away persons seeking asylum, and then those people are subject to abuse and maltreatment and in some instances are killed. Am I right? Is that really what this is all about, what refugee law is about, that that's the origin story? Really, yes, that is. And you're correct in that. I think a lot of people at that time had seen the horror during the war, and as you said, the killings and the tortures and the trauma that people during the war suffered, especially of Jewish descent. And I think the collective international community said, never again, what can we do to prevent this? And really created a legal framework by which states would then be obligated to provide safe haven, to provide asylum to people who had these conditions that they were facing back in their country. The idea behind it is to provide a place so that people would not be returned and to assess, to provide a place on the process by which people could be assessed as to whether or not they are meriting uh, refugee protection. Stephanie. This is a part of that. One of the principles we, you sometimes hear of is this idea of non-refoulement, which is basically uh, my bad French for, or the international language for, uh, you can't return people to unsafe conditions. Is, is that correct? Is that one of the fundamental principles of this international framework? Yes. So non-refoulement is now, I would say, of the stature of receiving international customary legal status. And it's the principle by which if you are uh, confronted by a person who is claiming that they are at risk of persecution, that you must assess uh, their claim and you have to determine whether or not it would be a risk for them to be returned. And if that is the case, to not return them to the place where they could be subject to such persecution. So, Jamie, that's the international context and framework. How does it work in Canada? So how is this brought down in Canadian practice? And I think probably for listeners' purposes, we're, we're going to be talking about the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. I suspect we'll quickly slip into calling it ERPA, its acronym. So ERPA, how does it work in Canada? Yeah, correct, Craig. So the ERPA actually brings home the framework from the Refugee Convention into Canadian domestic law. We find the refugee definition to be reflected in sections 96 to 98 of the ERPA. 
It's important to consider that while the framework in the Refugee Convention is brought directly into the IRPA, it also incorporates some aspects of the Convention Against Torture. So our refugee definition is actually broader and provides complementary protection in relation to the Convention Against Torture, which is also to provide protection to people who may be faced with torture or cruel and unusual punishment as well. So Canada is one of the places in the world considered to be of the gold standard in providing legal mechanisms and processes in which to determine whether someone is a refugee. We call it colloquially in refugee law, the inland protection regime. And that's because all of the assessments in this kind of rubric are done within Canada. But certainly the refugee definition assessment can be done overseas. When we talk about the refugee resettlement program, that's the program that many people may be more familiar with given the Syrian refugee crisis, and many people may be part of resettlement sponsorship groups privately or in line with the government to bring refugees over to Canada. But when we're talking about the more active, I would say, legal assessment being done is in our inland protection system. And that's when people actually come to our borders, are given admittance into our territory, and make a claim for refugee protection and have it assessed through the Immigration and Refugee Board, which is known more colloquially as the IRB. So, so Jamie, just to be clear, there are basically two different categories of refugee that we really have in our Canadian system. There's the ones that are recruited by the government of Canada. They're in refugee camps overseas. This would be the Syrian experience. And then they're brought to Canada, either through government sponsorship, or we have the system of private sponsorship where groups usually groups or individuals essentially pay a bond, if I'm correct. And the, the person comes over and takes up a residency in Canada and as a refugee and rebuilds their lives. So that's one thing. And then the second category, the category that probably most interests us, given the third party agreement, is those who turn up on their own steam. So they arrive at the border. And of course, they would come both from land that is the United States border. And that becomes really important, I think, going forward for our conversation, but also can also come by air and by sea. And they arrive in Canada and they say, as they enter the country, I'm a refugee and I am now claiming refugee status. Is that how it works? And there, thereafter, there's an adjudication process to determine whether they're bona fide as a refugee, as opposed to, say, an economic migrant, which would not meet the definition of persecution within the law. Am I right? Yeah. That's right. So you're right in the sense that there's two ways in which refugees can be accepted into Canada through the sponsorship program. You could be sponsored by the government or you could be selected by a private sponsorship group. So the government sometimes chooses those, but sometimes private groups can also identify a refugee. Again, those people generally have to meet the refugee definition, but sometimes Canada does uh, modify the refugee definition for those groups. But like you said, the inland protection system really deals with the identification of refugees who come to our borders. So as you said, they come either by land, by sea, by air, and they tell a border official, or once they're within Canada, they attend an Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada office and say, I want to make a claim for refugee protection. Once their claim is submitted, they will be given a date to attend an Immigration Refugee Board hearing where their refugee claim will be assessed. And it's there where there is a quasi-judicial, more administrative kind of proceeding where they're given an opportunity to tell their story. And if they're represented by a lawyer, where their lawyer can provide legal submissions as to why they meet the legal definition 
of a refugee. And as you said, only those people who qualify within that legal definition that we talked about will get refugee protection. So I guess I'm always a little bit antsy when we talk about national security and refugees. I, I try to see refugees through like a victim and humanitarian lens as opposed to national security lens. But you can't dispute there is a national security angle to some of these practices. In the first instance, you talked about the overseas refugees when we're picking people to come to, to Canada or finding people to come to Canada. We're, we're screening them and often that's done in conjunction with some of our national security agencies. But the other way is something you mentioned, which is when people come overseas by air, by sea in particular, and, and now increasingly by land, there has been a national security element as well. So for example, the service got involved when there was a large numbers of Tamil migrants coming by sea to Canada, not because necessarily the Tamils themselves coming over were a threat, but because gangs of Tamil criminals were orchestrating these kind of boat trips to Canada, and that was seen as an issue however people want to feel about that. So I guess my question is, if you come to Canada as part of a human smuggling ring, does that impact your ability to stay here if there's some suspicion that you've done so as part of a criminal enterprise or in the case of the Tamil Tigers, even perhaps a violent extremist one? Well, that's a, a great question, Stephanie. Part of the definition of refugee includes an assessment where people have to also not be inadmissible to Canada. So there's two things. First is that, is the person someone who has participated or engaged in activity that can be a risk to uh, Canadian national security or is deemed of a criminal nature so serious that we should not be conferring refugee protection on them. That can be done under an assessment of whether or not they are inadmissible. It can also be done under Section 98 of the ERPA, which assesses whether or not someone is excluded um, from refugee protection. So there is provision within our system whereby even though you may qualify to be a refugee and, and meet the definition of a refugee in all other respects, Despite that, if you have conducted yourself in a way amounting to serious criminal activity or poses a risk to national security, for example, to Canada, then you could be excluded from having refugee protection. And so there are opportunities and more than one opportunity by which uh, a potential refugee claimant could be denied refugee protection on those bases. Thank you. And Jamie, what would happen there? So if the person were denied refugee status, does that mean automatically they're removed? So let's assume that they are this threat to national security or involved in criminal enterprise. But nevertheless, if they're returned to their country of origin, there's a good chance that they would be maltreated. Would Canada nevertheless say, we don't really care, and so we're still going to remove you? Or is there some supplemental protection there? Certainly, Canada has a system whereby one place in which we assess refugee determination is at the IRB under Section 7698, but there is what's called the pre-removal risk assessment, and this can be done prior to someone being removed. And this is another opportunity where a person can say, yes, I did not get refugee protection, but I nevertheless should be prevented from being removed to my country of origin because of these risks. The issue with that now is that the government over the last, I would say, uh, 10 years has changed the way in which free removal risk assessments are more colloquially known as PROS, 
the way that they're done. And so if you have already made a claim for refugee protection, had it determined the reasons for why you made that claim cannot be used again in a pre-removal risk assessment. So it's res judicata. You can't have a second kick at the can as Jason Kenney famously described it when the provision was changed. In this sense, you have to identify additional risks or changes in your story since your refugee determination was made to show that you can't go back to your country of origin. In reality, it does mean that some people may be returned to their country of origin. Some people may be able to obtain temporary resident permits for various reasons. But if the country of origin issues a travel document or a passport to them and they are able to return to their country of origin, a lot of people do get returned back to their countries of origin. And certainly the Canadian Supreme Court has commented that there may be circumstances in which Canada would return a person to a risk of torture and that might survive a charter challenge. So the Supreme Court has left the door open for situations like this. And that's the Suresh case that we mentioned, Stephanie, in our podcast on Section 7. And that's the determination about removing people to torture was a Section 7 deliberation, although, the, again, the court was not absolute in saying never remove where there's a prospect of torture. Although, Jamie, it's interesting. I would have thought that since the prohibition on removal to torture is absolute in international law, and the Supreme Court has since Suresh reaffirmed that the Charter, to the extent possible, is to be interpreted consistently with international law, it would be very difficult for the Supreme Court, it seems to me, to justify that crack being left open where to revisit the issue in in Suresh, but it remains unknown at this point. I agree with you. It was alarming (laughs) to learn about that, I remember, as a student, but I think you're right. I think given the way in which uh, the Convention Against Torture and the Refugee Convention has received international customary status and certainly the way in which we have increasingly interpreted our rights or obligations with regards to non-refoulement, that finding certainly will face some sort of heightened scrutiny in the future. So maybe one last point before we turn to our, the specific topic that is a safe third country. One of the issues that often appears in the press is the manner in which these inland claims are adjudicated. So once upon a time, prior to the 1980s or up until the middle of the 1980s, the adjudication was done on paper for the most part, I think. And thereafter, it went to an oral hearing, a formal quasi-judicial process that looked a little bit like a court process. The reason for that, it was also constitutional, right? This, again, was one of the early Section 7 cases of procedural protection in circumstances where someone's credibility was being assessed. Are you, in fact, a bona fide refugee? Are you lying about your persecution or not? The Supreme Court concluded, relying on Section 7, that a statutory provision that precluded you having an oral hearing where you defended your credibility would be unconstitutional. And procedurally, you had to have that opportunity to appear in front of someone because we take the view in our legal system that credibility really can only be assessed in person and not really on paper. Is that a good summary of what we call the Singh case? Yes, that is a very good summary of the Singh case. In that case, I think what was really important to understand is that when you're making decisions about whether or not someone is telling the truth or whether you believe their story about their apparent risk to persecution, death, torture, etc., how are you supposed to assess that if you are not face-to-face with that person, talking to them and assessing Um, for yourself as to how they are communicating their stories. So it was, I think, one of the most celebrated and significant decisions in refugee law in Canada, because it was the turning point for the way in which refugee determinations are to be conducted. They always now are conducted in a hearing type setting. They used to be three person 
board hearings, but now they are heard before a one-member panel. And wherever there are issues of credibility, i.e., do you believe this person? Do you take their story to be authentic? These kinds of situations you have to assess through either an interview face-to-face or a hearing type setting. So this is not just confined to the refugee determination, but in, for example, the PRA system that I talked about earlier, if there's issues of credibility arising there, an immigration officer has to speak with or meet with an applicant to ensure that they do the assessment of credibility in person. So why don't we turn to the third party system? And so how does that work? What is that about? When we talk about safe third country, what are we talking about? The Safe Third Country Agreement came about in 2004. It was part of the package of negotiation regarding changes to the border system with the United States. The United States wanted more border security and systems put in place as a result of 9-11. And in exchange, Canada asked for the Safe Third Country Agreement because in reality, it benefits Canada more than the United States. The idea behind the Safe Third Country Agreement from Canada's point of view was that at the time, there was a huge backlog of refugee claimants at the Immigration Refugee Board. They wanted to reduce the backlog. They wanted to decrease the number of applicants. And one way of doing this was to prevent the flow coming from the United States. And the agreement's premise is that if you are coming from the United States, you are expected to make a claim there or you will be inferred to have made a claim there because that is the first country in which you have interacted with. And whichever country you land in first, you have an obligation or an expectation to make a claim there. In essence, it prevents this concept known in refugee law as forum shopping, that you can't land in the U.S. and then come to Canada and make a claim there. One detail of the agreement is that it only applies to people coming at or official ports of entry, the land ports of entry. So if you are a refugee claimant coming from the United States and you fly in from the United States or you come to a water port of entry, the Safe Third Country Agreement does not apply to you. Similarly, if you somehow circumvent the land port of entry and come into Canada by land, but not through an official port of entry, i.e. an official border crossing, and you find yourself within Canada, you are still eligible to make a refugee claim in Canada. Now that has changed given some of the recent changes in the regulations with regards to eligibility to refugee claims. But prior to those changes, what was happening was that people understood these limitations and would cross the border outside of the land ports of entry in order to be eligible to claim refugee protection once they found themselves in Canada. So this is the Roxham Road issue that we've heard so much about in you know, our recent political discourse. It's this road in Quebec where there links up with the United States. And we've seen pictures of individuals from the United States crossing over into Canada. Ironically, the people are trying to get arrested, I think. So in other words, that's how they make their official refugee claim by basically being taken into police custody. So this explains why we've seen that kind of surge in this kind of a regular crossing than having people showing up at the official borders. That's a very good point. Yes. What has happened is that there are certain points at the Canadian-U.S. border where the Canadian government started to see an increase of persons crossing. And one of these points of entry that is outside of an official 
border crossing or port of entry is at Roxham Road. What the Canadian government decided to do was actually set up a makeshift border crossing there because they started to see an increase of people coming through um, and would assist them to getting to across the border or to various services or places in which they can be um, assisted. So yes, the border crossing at Roxham Road is an ad hoc makeshift border crossing that the Canadian government had to set up because there was an increased number of people crossing at that point. Why, why, Jamie, does the Safe Third Country Agreement make this distinction? First of all, land border only, not other ports of entry. And secondly, it only applies to the official ports of entry between the United States and Canada that are land-based um, and not any kind of land-based border crossing, whether irregular or not. Why these distinctions? I think the idea behind it at the time was that it would deter people from coming to the land ports of entry, and they thought that it would be sufficient. What I think that they didn't realize or anticipate was that people would actually understand or comprehend the so-called loophole in the agreement, that they would actually risk crossing outside of those ports of entry. One thing I want to make clear is that this is not an easy thing to do. During the time when people started to cross the Canada-US border in frequent numbers a couple years ago, we saw people losing fingers, injuring themselves from frostbite and from dangerous crossing conditions. We even saw people dying in their attempts to cross the Canada-US borders. I think policymakers at the time just did not think that people would take the risk to cross outside of the official ports of entry. But we see now that some refugee claimants are fearing persecution or other conditions at such a heightened level that they are willing to put themselves in those kinds of um, frightening or risky routes just to get somewhere where they can make a refugee claim. That's probably a good point then to talk about what's changed since 2004. And so it may have been the case in 2004, looking at the United States refugee process and comparing it to the Canadian refugee process, that while Canada, I think, probably was more generous in its adjudication, that they weren't diametrically different. How have things changed in the intervening years? Since the inception of the Safe Third Country Agreement, refugees and refugee advocates have always said that this agreement was problematic because, as you said, our refugee determination system is not the same as that in the United States. What has changed since then is the election of President Trump. When President Trump was elected, he issued a number of executive orders that were targeted against immigrants and migrants. One of his famous executive orders was colloquially known as the Muslim ban, banning persons from Muslim countries from entering the United States. Uh, A series of executive orders also decreased opportunities for people to access the immigration and refugee systems there. And furthermore, some of the other actions um, that the United States government has taken has been quite concerning, including the mass detention of migrants, including migrant children, and the separation of migrant children from their parents. All of these, in conjunction with the also the shortcomings of the refugee determination system in the United States, aside from the detention aspect, the way in which they assess whether or not someone is a refugee is different in the sense that we recognize a broader range of 
categories of refugees. So for example, when I mentioned one of the grounds for tying your well-founded fear of persecution was membership of a particular social group. In that category in Canada, we recognize, as I said, gender-based claims based on sexual orientation and also claims that could be colloquially known as gang-based violence. These kinds of claims are not consistently recognized in the United States. They're, in fact, not being recognized in a lot of different uh, refugee determination venues. And in fact, a couple of years ago, Attorney General Jeff Sessions also came out to say that we are not going to recognize refugee claims based on gender persecution, coming out to say that in a decision that was appealed to him. So I think all of this put together had created an environment in the United States where migrants were suddenly confronted with an atmosphere where they feared they would not get a fair or full assessment in the refugee system in the United States, and also confronted the fear of being detained. This led to a huge increase in the numbers of persons coming to our border, both at official ports of entry and outside of those official ports of entry. Let's talk about the challenge then, the Canadian Council of Refugees case that went to the federal court. So this case involved some interveners, and so public interest groups, who had a long-standing concern that goes back to 2004 about safe third country. And then there were some, I suppose we can call them representative individuals who had been subject to the safe third country agreement and had been turned around when they tried to enter Canada. And so they were never given an opportunity to have their refugee claims adjudicated within Canada. Uh, And their stories are quite compelling if you read the case because they were turned around and then promptly detained. And that became quite an important consideration for the court, the detention issue especially. So do you want to walk us through how this worked and specifically focusing on the Section 7, Life, Liberty, Security of the Person? Issue And maybe the first question, I suppose, is how is it that these people, they're no longer in Canada, they were refused entry into Canada, how is it they have any charter rights at all? Yeah, first thing I want to say is that there was a previous case involving the same interveners. So the Canadian Council of Churches, Canadian Councils for Refugee, Amnesty International, alongside the named applicants, as you mentioned, there's quite a few. The first case that was heard by the federal court shortly after the Safe Third Country Agreement came into play was it was it was a loss for refugees and for those interveners at the time because the named applicant hadn't actually tried to cross the Canada US border. This case that just came out at the end of July, there were a number of refugee claimants who came to the Canada US border, had tried to make a refugee claim, were denied. Some of them have since obtained a stay of removal or temporary resident permit, but some of them were actually returned back to the United States and were detained, as you said. All of them come from uh, refugee-producing countries. So for example, El Salvador, Syria, Ethiopia, and all have very compelling refugee claims that have a very good chance of being recognized as meriting refugee protection in Canada. This case, as you said, really is decided on Section 7. Justice McDonald of the federal court Um, was confronted with two separate charter challenges, one on Section 7, one on Section 15. She chose not to deal with the Section 15 issue and solely on the Section 7 issue. And and to be clear, Section 15 is the equality right, which we've not yet talked about with Charisma. That's coming up in a future episode of um, Muskoka Chair Chats. Oh, that sounds awesome. I think Justice McDonald, her finding is really tied to what actually happened. So the lived experience of someone actually coming to the Canada-US border. 
I have to say that the lawyers involved in this case did immense amount of work to provide not only the social science evidence, but dozens of affidavits of affidavit evidence of not only experts in the United States with regards to what's happening to immigrants and refugees in the United States, but also persons who've actually experienced the immigration regime in the United States, and particularly what the conditions and the treatment they're receiving in relation to detention. So Justice McDonald first found that the Section 7 rights of persons coming to our border were violated. And and Craig, you raised a really important point. How is it that our Charter of Rights and Freedoms is implicated when we're talking about migrants and persons coming to our border? Any time that anybody interacts with our state, and this includes at our borders, the Charter is implicated. This is a place where the Charter is applicable to anybody who is subject to state action by the Canadian government. And so it applies anywhere where the state is interacting with a person, and especially at the border, is still a Canadian jurisdiction. And so it's not hard to see why the Charter would apply to a person like this. And Justice McDonald affirms this in this case. But she also says that um, their Section 7 liberty and security of the person rights were violated. And she said that liberty rights were violated because in essence, the evidence borne out in this case was that any person who tried to make a refugee claim at the border was detained. You were detained, you were imprisoned simply for trying to make a refugee claim. Detained by the um, U.S.? Yes, by the U.S. And the Canadian government in this case tried to argue we are not the ones doing the detaining. We don't have control over what our partners do. But Justice McDonald also said that CBSA officials were actively turning over persons at the border directly to immigration officials in the U.S. And so that interaction also colored her decision and implicated how the Canadian government was involved in the charter violation and the knowledge that the Canadian government had that in turning a person over in this kind of interaction could lead to the detention of that person. With regards to security of the person, she really focused on the conditions in detention. And so anyone who is detained in a U.S. prison under immigration hold, what was communicated through the plethora of evidence provided to the court was that they were often not given an opportunity to access a lawyer or legal services. Some of the applicants in this case were Muslim and they were forced to eat pork. They were only given pork to eat while they were detained. There were cold conditions, conditions where they were held in facilities that were overcrowded. There were a number of issues with the ways and the conditions under which people were being detained. And here, Justice McDonald said that this was a breach of their charter right in terms of the security of the person, affecting not only their physical well-being, but their mental well-being. She also talked about outside of detention, the fact that there was an opportunity for people to be refouled, so people to be returned back to their country of origin without having their refugee claim assessed at all. So she said that once people were turned back to the U.S., people could actually be deported or sent back to their country of origin without even having their refugee claim assessed at all. And so she said this was penalizing people for making a refugee claim and that there was an extremely um, dire risk of people being returned without even 
meeting that basic obligation that states have now under the Refugee Convention, which is to assess whether they really are refugees or not. Stephanie. Yeah, I have a non-lawyer question here. Craig, when you and I have talked about the border on the podcast before, we've often referred to it as a charter-free zone. That is, the Supreme Court and other courts in Canada have allowed border officials a lot of leeway with regards to their actions at the border in order to have a national security. This seems to go against that, the idea that the charter, that specific right applies in this particular way would seem to go a little bit against that. So I'm just wondering if you could maybe reconcile those two points for me. I would say there's, in this kind of scenario, there is what happens on paper and what happens in reality, right? On paper, the charter applies to people at the border and we can understand that. But in reality, how many people coming to our borders know that? And this is what was confronted in this case too. So The government tried to argue, well, even though these people may not be eligible to make a refugee claim, they have other avenues to pursue. And the court really took to heart the arguments made by the interveners and the applicants in this case, where they said, how many refugee claimants do you know understand the legal system in Canada, understand their um, opportunities, their rights under the refugee protection system, and can invoke these kinds of things like, hey, wait a second, my charter right is being violated, can you rethink that decision? In reality, it is only invoked when someone can bring attention to it at the border. And I think that is one of the illuminating things about Justice McDonald's decision is that she looks at the reality of what actually happens at the border and calls out the government for saying, it's not always true that these people know that these certain avenues or opportunities or applications are available to them. Like how many people can whip up an application for a PRA or a temporary resident permit at the border without legal counsel. I'm a Canadian citizen and I don't even know my rights at the border. (laughs) I would just be calling Craig or you and just being like, help. But but, I mean, yeah. But Stephanie, just on the other aspect to your question is, look, not all rights are treated the same way. So when we talk about the charter rights applying differently at the border, we typically are talking about the Section 8 protections, right? So reasonable search and seizure. The view of the court for a long time has been that the state has an important interest in policing who it is that crosses the border and what circumstances and therefore can engage in more invasive search and seizure than would otherwise be available in land. That's a different policy preoccupation than saying, oh, the state at the border can also now infringe or limit people's life, liberty, and security of the person interest. There, the justification is not the same, right? Because you're talking here about two quite discrete rights that operate differently. So I think we have to partition the world of charter rights a little bit in making the statement about the application of the charter at the border. I guess this is going to be something I want to talk about maybe with you and Charisma later is like, why is it that some rights apply in the circumstances and not others? But that's a really interesting answer. It's not that the rights don't apply. Section 8 still applies. It's just that the jurisprudence to this point, and I'm not sure it's going to be sustained, by the way, but the jurisprudence, which dates really from the 1980s, and this is really about the powers of CBSA, as it now is, to go through your suitcase. That jurisprudence has now also been applied to your smartphone, right? Now, the policies are a little bit more rigorous than mere whim, but constitutionally, the view of the government has been there's no distinction between your smartphone and the suitcase, um, and nor is there under the Customs Act. Now, that view is almost certainly going to be challenged. In fact, I think it's the basis for Ms. Meng's challenge in her collateral challenge to the extradition proceedings that are taking place now in British Columbia. That's exactly Uh, what I was thinking, and I was wondering if this case could have an impact on that one. 
Jamie, we're running out of time here, but there's one other aspect I think we need to grapple with in this safe third country case. We've talked about the trigger, that is life, liberty, security of the person. The court concludes it applies. But as we learned from our conversation with Charisma, that's only the first step. The second step is also to demonstrate that deprivation is contrary to principles of fundamental justice. And the court in this case focused on two concepts that we discussed briefly with Charisma, that is the question of overbreadth and the question of disproportionate impact. Do you want to talk us through how those concepts worked in this case? Yeah, and with regards to overbreadth, I think the court really concentrated on the fact that the Safe Third Country Agreement really is about sharing responsibility in the obligations related to the Refugee Convention. So obligations with regards to assessing, determining, and providing refugee protection where merited. Sharing responsibility, um, they, sharing responsibility with the United States, right? So it's with the a, United yeah, States, okay. yes. And Justice McDonald really calls out the way in which the U.S. government is not living up to its shared responsibility and saying that the way in which they are treating immigrants and migrants by penalizing them for simply attempting to make a refugee claim, putting them in immigration detention or essentially prisons, shocks the conscience and really affects the way in which we should be thinking about how we want to live up to our expectations or obligations with regards to refugee conventions. So she finds that both overbreadth and grossly disproportionate are met, and that the way in which the United States is conducting itself and the way that we are implicated in sending people back to the situation does not accord to the principles of fundamental justice. And I think she also focuses particularly on the fact that there has been no merit assessment. Right. She's, she says that this is very different from other immigration proceedings in Canada where persons may say, my charter right is being violated because you're returning me to a place where I'm at risk of persecution or death. But in some of those cases, those people have had their claims assessed already at the IRB or through a PRA, those two processes I've talked about before. In this case, none of that has happened. And Justice McDonald really rested her decision on the fact that None of these processes have occurred either in Canada or in the United States. And because of that, people may be at risk of being sent back without any assessment or are being punished for simply trying to get that assessment done by being um, put in detention. She found this to be overbroad and to be grossly disproportionate to what the aim of the Safe Third Country Agreement was, which was from the Canadian side to decrease the number of claims coming through our border to provide an efficient and streamlined process of determining refugee decisions, and also to share the responsibility a bit with a partner that's supposed to be upholding the same obligations that we are trying to uphold. So basically what was supposed to be a choice of forum device, so whichever country you land in first, that's the venue in which you have to bring your refugee claim. turns out that on one side of the border, the U.S. side, it's not so much a choice of forum as in I'm reading between the lines here and some of the critique that she offers as sort of a legal black hole in which you're punished for the very fact that you sought refugee status. And that means that the choice of forum provision is no longer a choice of forum so much as pitching someone into the abyss. Is that too yeah. strong an expression? <laughs> it, no, it, it definitely is that way. I've always told people that it's very curious that usually states are really loath to give away their decision-making power. And yet in this case, Canada is willing and has been actively promoting the fact that it wants the United States to decide who's a refugee 
without us having to do the same when those people come to our borders. So I think it's a really interesting case study in international law to say that this is a situation where a state is trying to walk back from its obligation to do the work in making decisions about who is deserving of refugee protection and giving away a little bit of its jurisdiction, which is very curious. But I would say Canada should embrace this decision. Justice McDonald gave the government six months to figure out what to do. It is a little bit concerning that so far the government has not suspended the safe third country agreement. So really what happened, what's happening now is that it still applies at our land ports of entry. So it will be interesting to see how the government responds to this. And as I said, it's an opportunity for the government to revisit its role in the world with regard to how it wants to live up to its obligations with refugee protection. Yeah, and in fact, the court also gives short shrift to the government's justification, that is, its Section 1 effort, and says essentially that, first of all, it's hard to justify a Section 7 violation on Section 1 grounds. We talked a little bit about that with Charisma the other day. But more than that, the government simply hadn't approved the elements that were required to make out its Section 1 justification in terms of the legitimacy or the validity of a safe third country. And so I suppose at this point, we're recording this on the 11th of August. I don't think the government's window for filing its appeal would have closed yet. So we don't know. Do we know if they've appealed? No, at this moment, we don't know. It's interesting in my discussions with people in the bar that uh, represent a lot of refugees, there's mixed reaction with regards to what we think will happen. Some feel that this decision will be difficult to appeal. And I think some people think that it was smart of Justice McDonald not to wade down the road of Section 15, and that Section 15 would have been a much more difficult thing to have provided a nuanced analysis with. And the fact that she chose to rest her decision on Section 7, I think also with the evidence given in the case, as I said, there was dozens of expert and detainee and refugee claimant affidavits that were provided. I should note that it's interesting because in this case, I should say the government vociferously defended their position throughout on a side that you don't see on the face of the judgment is that The government had challenged the admittance of some of the expert affidavits, had tried to delay certain things in in the litigation. So it would not surprise me to see that they would appeal this decision or take action to change the way in which the agreement works so that it may now fit within what some people may think is not violating the charter rights of a person. So it will be interesting to see, but my sense given what the government has done in the past, publicly speaking, with regards to the Safe Third Country Agreement and the way in which it conducted itself during the litigation, it was very much taking a hard stance with regards to keeping this agreement in place. Great. That's all the time we really have for today. This has been a very thorough walkthrough, not just the refugee system, but also then the question of safe third country. I hope uh, people have found it uh, useful. I've certainly learned a lot in our discussions, Jamie, over the last uh, 50 minutes or so. And so we'll wait and see what happens with this case. It's still a live matter, as you've suggested. And uh, I guess at some point, we'll need to do an update. And we'll, if you're willing, have you back on to talk about uh, next steps in, in terms of this matter. Thank you for talking about this very important case. And I think a lot of people know about this agreement, seeing people cross the border. So it's great that you're speaking about it. And we'll be back with another episode of a podcast called Intrepid next week. See you then.